aka the Kansas City Bitcher. Bitcher. <laughs> <laughs> everyone this is jen and this is lisa and welcome to curiosity syndrome the first episode we're finally fucking here we're finally here lisa's only been trying to get me to do a podcast for five years (laughs) a long time a very very long long time time. very long time i've asked you a ton of times and you know just got shot down for it well you know if i was gonna do it i wanted to do it right and had to be like completely professional because you know i just i can't half ass shit so you're ridiculous here we are and now we are curiosity syndrome curiosity syndrome syndrome. jen why did we why did we pick that name well i mean for me i mean we're always we went through a couple words, but like curious was always the word we kept coming back to because we're always like, oh, what about this? What about this? We want to know about this. Let's look up this. And then it's just like syndrome because we're sick in the fucking head. Only a little bit. But no, um, it, I mean, yeah, but it is kind of like, I mean, a good disease, I guess, because we always want to learn more. So this is true. We're always passing back um, and forth articles that we found, uh, asking each other about the weird the stuff that we found while cruising the internet, Facebook, all that. Oh, yeah. So. I mean, it just kind of made it just kind of made sense. It did. I was trying to lean more towards true crime, but we didn't want to just do that. So yeah, I really didn't want to do that, especially after what our first episode is going to be about. Yeah. <laughs> so we're coming in real hard, swinging yeah. out the gate with some crazy, crazy craziness. Yeah. Um, our first case, it's a doozy, dude. Thanks to Jen here, this is uh, the case that was chosen by her. What made you want to pick this case, Jen? Well, speaking of being curious, um, I think I was on BuzzFeed or something looking at an article and it mentioned this dude and I realized, oh, he lives 45 minutes from where Allie just moved to. Shout out to Allie. Shout out to Allie. We love you. Yeah. And I was like, it was strange to me because I hadn't heard of him and then I know you know a lot about true crime. So when I sent it to you and you said you didn't hear about him, I was like, whoa, (laughs) whoa, man. Yeah. Uh, how I've never heard this covered. I listen to a lot of podcasts, watch a lot of shows, never have heard of him. Mm-mm. Have a couple books too. We were at Barnes and Nobles earlier looking Nothing. through books. Nothing. His name was not in any of them, uh, which I put him up there with Gacy and, Con- and Dahmer. Yeah. Like I, I don't understand how I don't know more about this guy until now. So for our first podcast, let me introduce to you Robert Perdella, aka the Kansas City Butcher. Lisa, why don't you start this one out? Okay, so Robert Verdella was born on January 31st in 1949. He was born in Cuyahoga Falls? Cuyahoga, yeah, I think that's right. Okay, that's in Ohio. My bad, Ohio. We had to look it up. I wasn't sure how to pronounce that. Aren't you from Ohio? Look, okay, (laughs) I've never heard of this. Yeah, uh, way different part. Never heard of it. My, My bad, Ohio. No disrespect. So his parents were Robert Verdella Sr. and Mary Verdella. Uh, he was the first of two boys. His brother Daniel was born around the time Robert was seven years old. His father was a diecaster for Ford. Uh, Never heard of it. It basically just meant that he put equipment together for other people to use. So, right. a company bitch. Uh, Mary, she was a stay-at-home mom. And Robert Sr., he was a bit of a devout Catholic. He made his family attend Mass, and the, he enrolled the boys into a religious education. Robert Sr. was also an abusive shitbag. He beat his children... And uh, with Bob receiving the worst of it. Wow, dude. 
Yeah. So as a child, Bob was a loner. He had developed a speech impediment and wore thick glasses by the time that he was five years old. He wasn't athletic at all, like his younger brother who excelled in sports, which that pissed uh, Robert Sr. off because he was a man's man. A man's man. And he was all about some sports balls. Sports balls. Of course, that caused even more issues between Bob and his father and strained their relationship even further. Um, He was labeled by his teachers as an intelligent, bright young man, but they said that they always had a hard time getting him to focus they said he seemed like he always uh, was in his own little world most of the time. But uh, around this time, as that lovely thing that fucks up all of our worlds comes around, puberty. Uh, he realized when he hit puberty that he was gay, hmm. which he had kept it hidden because at the time that was frowned upon. Right, quote unquote. right, yeah. yeah. And uh, I'm sure that didn't make his uh, religious daddy so happy, huh? Mm, probably not. Yeah. Probably not. When he was in high school, unfortunately, trigger warning, he was sexually assaulted while he was working part-time in a kitchen. Damn, dude. What a... For your first job, too? I know. It's God, awful. Okay. And this would also be his first homosexual experience as well. Damn. Yeah. Um, he didn't report it to anyone. He didn't tell anyone. He kind of kept it to himself. So on Christmas Day in 1965, the Brodella family went on a vacation to Canton, Ohio. That same night, Robert Sr., uh, he had his heart attack him. <laughs> his heart attacked him? <laughs> His heart was like, I'm out, bitch. His heart's like, you're not going to kill these, beat these kids no more. Deuces. Bob, exactly. Uh, So (laughs) he was put into the hospital. Two days later, he passed away at the very, very young age of 39. Well, get fucked. Indubitably, get fucked, sir. So in this same year, BBB. BBB? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't tell you my nickname for him. Oh, God. It stands for Bitch Boy Bob. <laughs> oh, God. I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. <laughs> it makes sense. Don't worry. So he went and he watched a movie called The Collector. It's about a man who stalks and kidnaps a young woman who he finds attractive and then holds her captive in his basement. After several weeks, the woman gets sick and dies, despite him trying to keep her alive. Bradella would later say this became a fascination of his. Of course it was. Yeah, so around this time, his mother had remarried, and little bitch boy Bob, he got real angry. Uh, He resented her for it because he felt he, she had betrayed his whole ass, dead-ass daddy. He's literally dead. Literally dead. Literally dead. So Bradella, at this point, dove back into some hobbies he had picked up along the way. Uh, He liked to paint. He collected coins, um, stamps. He also started writing to foreign pen pals. Oh, okay. These pals would actually send him the stamps and things for his collection. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, he would receive photographs, mythical and historical icons, uh, ancient cultures, and architecture, which would lead to him developing an avid interest in primitive art, photographs, and antiques. Oh, all right. So in 1967, Verdella, he graduated from high school, and he enrolled at the Kansas City Art Institute in Missouri, which, which, was, a, which was a much different experience than what he was used to, because he was, you know, from Ohio and going to Kansas City, you know. A little big, big difference there, but he did major in painting and he hoped to become a college professor. During his first year, he was a pretty good student. He attended classes, paid attention. His professor said he was talented and he seemed to be focused on his education. When he started his sophomore year, he started to become more rebellious. His friends at the time would rather do drugs and get high, but he didn't partake much in using drugs. He definitely still did them, but he did realize he could earn some money by selling them. Ooh, slanging some drugs. Mm -hmm. In that January, he ended up selling meth 
to an undercover <laughs> officer and was arrested. His bail was $3,000, and that's the equivalent of 23000 today. And, I mean, that's pretty large for that kind of offense. I mean, back then, everyone was doing drugs, you know? And, I mean, there's worse crimes now that don't even have that that's large a of a lot. bail. Yeah. That's a lot of money. But um, he did plead guilty to the charge and received a five-year suspended sentence, but... <laughs> But a month later, he was arrested again for possession of marijuana and LSD. And he was already in debt from his previous arrest, so he failed to post bond this time. So he spent five days in jail only to have the charges dropped due to a lack of evidence. Wow. He's kind of lucky. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, I don't even. Yeah. I don't don't know, dude. (laughs) One month and he was back. Right. Wow. But because of his lawyer fees and fines, he needed money, obviously, more money than drug dealing was making him. So he got a job as a short order cook and quit the drug dealing business. So now it's about September 1969, and with this job, he was able to afford a down payment and purchase his first home. 4315 Charlotte Street. Now, I want you to guess how much he needed for a down payment in 1969. Hmm. How much do you think he needed to put down on a house? To buy a house. 3000 He needed $100 what? to put down on the house. Do you know, I used an inflation calculator and, in calculator, and in today's dollars, that is $738.39. Are you serious? Yeah, and it's like a three-story what three story house. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. I yeah. mean. Yeah, he just bought this house, and, you know, he's a junior in college, and he bought his house. And just a cook. Yeah. I'm out here killing myself trying to work, and I can't even buy a house. That's crazy. Yeah, but anyway, he's in his junior year. He's not really enjoying it. So um, at this point, we've reached his so-called art project. Um, oh I will do a quick trigger warning, animal abuse. So if you're uncomfortable, skip ahead maybe 30 seconds. But... I'm uncomfortable. I can't skip. All right. Well, I don't know what to tell you. So. All right. Well, I'm here. So he, he's experimented on animals previously. I think at one point he gave tranquilizers to a dog and he mm. made this really uncomfortable chicken film mace thing. Dude, I don't even know. Um, it was just described in the book and I have no idea. Like, it's just weird. But um, this was when he completely grossed out not only his professors, but the entire student body. So he brought a live duck onto campus, decapitated it. And then danced around its dead body. Wow. Red red flag alert if there ever was one. Can you imagine just sitting there? Probably even high because of the times and, you know, they did drugs. And this fucker comes out with a goddamn duck and just chops its head off in front of you. Dude, I don't even... I don't, imagine I don't, I don't just even, even being sober. Holy shit, dude. I'd have been like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, get me out. I need an adult help. <laughs> but then he took it home and cooked it. Oh. Yeah, well, so right about when he bought that house and after all this weird-ass shit, he dropped out. So here we are in the 1970s. His cooking career has actually taken off. He's now a senior chef at some of the higher-end restaurants in Kansas City, and he's even helped create a training program for new chefs at a local community college. Uh, But because he was doing fairly well at the time as a chef, along with selling the antiques and artifacts that is as his like little side hustle thing, Mm -hmm. um, he thought of himself as a, quote, mentor, unquote, to this community of vulnerable men. And when I say vulnerable men, we're talking sex workers, runaways, addicts, anyone who really needed a support system. But later on, he told officers that he did not have any sort of physical contact with these men at the time. Well... 
the lie detector test determined that was a lie. Oh, Maury. Maury. So many of these men came forward later and said, yeah, no, he would manipulate us, drug us, have sex with us, whether we consented or not. Which wow. it makes it even more ironic that he helped with the neighborhood watch program at the end of the 70s. But eventually he did quit the food industry because his side hustle became his full-time job. This was probably right around 1981. He opened Bob's Bazaar Bazaar, which it's Bazaar B-A-Z and then Bazaar B-I-Z, which makes no sense to me that it's not the other way around, but you know, it is what it is. So he opened Bob's Bazaar Bazaar at West Point Flea Market, selling and trading art, jewelry, all sorts of weird shit. So some months he did make good money, but he did have to bring it in some other way. So he would have boarders at the house do chores for him, and he would go back to his criminal ways, and he would actually steal some of the items to sell at the booth. Um, But near his booth at the flea market, there was a merchant that he became acquainted with over the years named Paul Howell. Paul introduced his son to Berdella, who would actually end up meeting a tragic fate as the Kansas City Butcher's first victim, Jerry Howell. Jerry was just 14 years old when he first met Berdella. Jerry and his friends would sometimes tease Berdella. At this point, he was openly gay, so they would make jokes at his expense. In the early 80s, Jerry had turned to sex work. Jerry confided into Berdella that he turned to this means to make money. Berdella was surprised, and he felt that Jerry was way too young and lacked street smarts. But Jerry didn't care, and he ignored his lecture. Like his creepy ass should be giving any kind of advice. I agree. Bradella even went as far as wanting, wanting, let's, let's clarify, wanting to tell Paul, Jerry's father, about what his son had been up to. But he was too afraid, of course, to tell him directly. So he basically played bitch-ass telephone until it got around to Paul what Jerry was up to. Way to be direct. Again, bitch boy Bob. Told you it makes sense. So he was furious, to say the least, and he, quote-unquote, forcefully told Jerry of his disapproval. However, that did not deter Jerry. Jerry was angry at Berdella for telling his father, and he stopped visiting the flea market. Jerry had moved to L.A. and got a part-time job for a few months. Then he moved back to Kansas City. At first, while there, Jerry refused to even acknowledge Berdella's existence. However, in early 1984, he ran into a few legal issues that he needed help with. So, of course, Berdella offered to help pay for a lawyer if Jerry helped him with a few things around the house. Berdella also helped him get a car, some dental work done, all while providing him with drugs. <laughs> Is that how that works? I'm going to help you get a car. I'm going to help you with your legal stuff. I'm going to fix your teeth. And, oh, yeah, here's some drugs. Yeah, he's like the Oprah of drugs and shit. <laughs> <laughs> you get some drugs and you get some drugs and you get some drugs. Everybody Jesus. get some drugs. Oh, my God. Jesus. <laughs> so... Jerry and Berdella did sometimes uh, engage in consensual sex, but Jerry was always trying to make sure that he returned home before his dad would wake up each morning. Paul did not approve of the two men spending time together, but Jerry was now 19, so there wasn't much that he could do. On July 5th in 1984, Berdella went to pick up Jerry around 6 p.m. Jerry was going to meet up with some friends at a club in Merriam, Kansas, so he asked Berdella for a ride, really just in hopes that he would get him high on his way there. When he didn't come home for the weekend, his father became concerned. He went to the police, believing that Berdella had something to do with his son's disappearance. The police, well, they mostly wrote him off, saying that Jerry was most likely just a runaway. Oh, of course they did. Yeah, they didn't care. No. But they did, however, set up surveillance, question mark, on Berdella for a time. But with no evidence, the case ended up going cold. Paul even went to question Berdella himself, as he was the last person that was seen with his son. 
Corsi said that he dropped Jerry off at a 7-Eleven just four blocks from where he picked him up. In all actuality, Bradella had taken Jerry back to his home. This is where he injected him with tranquilizers that would knock him unconscious. Trigger warning. It mm-hmm. involves sexual assault and many other horrific things. Mm-hmm. So now in his complete control, Bradella stripped, bound, and gagged Jerry. He then began his merciless sexual assaults until he could no longer continue. He then started using foreign objects to violate Jerry. Throughout the night, Jerry was kept drugged and tied up to Bradella's bed. On July 6th, Bradella went about his day as usual. He went and opened his booth at the flea market. He did, however, close his shop early because he was excited to get home to what he deemed his new quote-unquote plaything. He's a monster. Upon his arrival home, he administered more sedative drugs and continued his assault. At 10 p.m., Jerry died from choking on his own vomit. He then took Jerry down to the basement, tied him to the ceiling, and made several incisions and drained him of blood. This is where he did get his namesake of the Kansas City Butcher. He then used his quote-unquote tools to dismember the body. He wrapped each piece in plastic, placed them inside of green trash bags, and then piled them out front by the curb for trash pickup. On Monday morning, he watched as a sanitation worker threw them into the truck to be taken to the landfill. And less than 24 hours after arriving at Verdella's home, Jerry had been brutally murdered, and it would be under a year later until he killed again. Like, this is supposed to be a kid you're mentoring, and, like, I... It's crazy. He it's met him when he was 14. 14. 14. Oh, my God. And he does this. He had been around this kid since he was 14 to 19, and this is what he does to this kid. It's awful. And now this is going to bring us to our second victim, Robert Sheldon. Robert Sheldon was a former boarder of Bradella's. He was introduced to him by his friend Freddie Kellogg in 1983, having moved to Kansas City from California that same year. Sheldon stayed with him a few times over the years, even once allowing Bradella to inject him with Thorazine as an experiment. Thorazine... Yeah, Thorazine is the brand name of the, let me try to pronounce this correctly, chlorpromazine, chlorpromazine or CPZ. It's an antipsychotic and it, it knocked him out. Wow. That's insane. Yeah. And he, he like let him do that. I would never be like, yo, dude, here's my arm. Inject me. <sighs> um, but um, otherwise, Sheldon did have a job doing manual labor at a manufacturing plant at the end of 1985. But according to his employers, he stopped showing up to work on either April 11th or April 12th. Um, on April 10th, two days prior, Sheldon went to Berdella's house asking him for a place to stay. Being no. a mentor. Yeah. yeah. Not in a good choice. On April 12th, Verdella, after, quote, debating, unquote, it for a few days, decided to make Sheldon his second victim. He came home that night, and Sheldon was already drunk, so he took his opportunity to drug, sexually assault, and torture. I'm I'm just going to refer to as DTSA from here on out. We don't have to keep, like, going over, you know. That's fine with me. Trigger warning, you know. <clears throat> he basically did this nonstop for the next three days. He'd tie his hands using piano wire to try and cause nerve damage. He'd put caulk in his ears so he couldn't hear. He swabbed Drano in his eyes so he couldn't see and put hypodermic needles under his fingernails. Oh my god, no. Fingernail shit freaks me out. (sighs) Yeah, like this went on for three whole days. Oh my god. It only stopped because contractors showed up to the house to do tree work on the roof on the 15th and not wanting the workers to hear Sheldon's screams... He suffocated him with a plastic bag. Once Sheldon had died, he placed him in the bathtub and proceeded with what he did to Jerry to um, dispose of the body. 
The difference being that this asshole took Sheldon's head and buried it in the backyard. Um, he was only 20 years old. And uh, two months later, he'd make another 20-year-old, Mark Wallace, his next victim. Mark Wallace was born in Ohio. He and his family moved to Kansas City when Mark was eight years old. He dropped out of high school and joined the Marine Corps when he was just 17. After a few short months, Mark ended up going AWOL, and they dishonorably discharged him. Wallace lived with his sister for several months after his departure from service. Um, in 1985, he began doing some yard work to try to make some extra cash, and this is how he met Verdella. Mm, no. Mark was essentially homeless at this point, so one night on June 22nd in 1985, as he was walking through Hyde Park, it started storming. Caught a downpour and desperate for shelter, he recalled that Berdella had a tool shed in his backyard. He and his friend who had worked on Berdella's yard a few days oh. earlier didn't lock it up after they no, had finished. No, no, no. Bad idea. Bad idea. Yep. So Wallace ducked into the shed for shelter, but Berdella's dogs saw him and they began barking like crazy. This, of course, got Berdella up out of bed and he noticed that the tool shed door was slightly open. He looked in and that's where he found Wallace and being the quote unquote good man that he is, he invited him in the house to stay. Oh, no. Yeah. Bardella mm -hmm. then offered him some chlorazepam. Is that how you say it? I think it was that chlora, that CPZ thing. That okay. was, yeah, CPZ. Just... Bardella then offered him some CPZ to help him relax and sleep, and he accepted. Once he was out like a light, Bardella then took him upstairs. He continued to DTSA, as Jen said we were going to call it, in the same ways he did on previous victims. The next morning, it was time for Bardella to open up his shop. He gave Wallace two very large doses of drugs to try to keep him unconscious. When he returned home, he found Wallace awake and trying to escape. Bradella then drugged him again and continued with the captivity. On June 23rd, at 7 p.m., when Bradella came back to check on Wallace, he had died just like Jerry. <laughs> that night, he did what he did to his previous victims, placing the body parts at the curb for trash pickup. The following August, his brutality grew when he kidnapped James Ferris, his fourth victim. Walter James Ferris, he went by James, met Berdella in 1984 through a mutual friend named Gene Shaw. Being a drug addict, along with Shaw, they'd often go to Berdella for drugs such as tranquilizers, marijuana, CPZ, any type of fix they could get. That was about the extent of their casual friendship, but in September of 1985, Berdella happened to see Ferris hitchhiking on the side of the road. He picked him up and noticed instantly he was high. Ferris told him he needed a place to stay, and Verdella was unsurprisingly more than welcome to offer him his home. You know, being a mentor or whatever. Yeah, mentor. Yeah. yeah. Air the, bunnies. The next night, all three of them went out, and Ferris asked if Shaw could stay with them. That was going to be a no from Verdella. Ferris and Shaw then partied for a few days, and Verdella was not happy about it. Um, on September 26, 1985, Ferris asked Verdella out to the bar with him. He had his wife, Bonnie, drop him off near the bar, and then he walked the rest of the way. Uh, unfortunately, that would be the last time Bonnie saw her husband alive, and what makes it even more sad is she was actually pregnant with their first child. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Yeah. So, but Ferris, so sad. Yeah, but Ferris and Berdella, they did meet up at the bar, and before he even showed up, Berdella already knew he was going to kidnap him. He took him back to the house, he crushed tranquilizers into his food, let him pass out, and tied him to the bed to, once again, DTSA Ferris for roughly 27 hours. Um, he brutalized him with Jesus Christ. Um, electrical shocks to his genitals. 
and he once again used hypodermic needles in his neck and genitals. No. He would die from his injuries in the same manner as Jerry and Mark and then Bordella disposed of his body. Um, but these these next two victims went through some of the most horrific kinds of torment that you can never imagine, and that's going to start with Todd Stoops. Todd met Berdella in 1984. He was a drug addict, and he was in need of cash. Todd saw Berdella waiting in his car, and he asked him for a ride to go to one of his dealer's homes. Within a few days after meeting, Todd and his wife moved into Berdella's home. He was hoping that they would clean up their acts, but their addictions had taken over their lives, so they did not stay long. It had been two years since he had first met Todd when they ran into each other again on June 17, 1986. Todd hopped into his car as he was in need of a place to stay. Todd had recently gotten out of jail, and in his time behind bars, he had lost contact with his wife. The two men returned to Verdella's home, where Bob crushed up some Advil and put it in milk, and crushed up some tranquilizers and put it into a peanut butter sandwich. Jesus Christ. Verdella was extremely attracted to Todd. Basically, for him, Todd was his perfect one. Todd then went upstairs to try to get some sleep, and once he was out cold, Verdella began assaulting him. He kept Todd untied for most of the assaults, but bound him once he decided that he wanted to use his electric shock treatment. He put alligator clips to spatulas and placed them on Todd's eyes in an attempt to blind him. What in the actual hell? I don't know how he got this idea. I don't know. Or why he thought this would work. Jesus. He kept up with his DTSA for the next few days. One morning, trigger warning here, he raped Todd with his fist and there was some heavy bleeding from his rectum. I don't even have words at this point. Like, I don't... I didn't even read it. It's so bad. It's awful. (sighs) Even with this injury, Brudella continued to sexually assault him. He tried to feed Todd a few times, but he was unable to keep anything down. He had also developed a fever, so Brudella injected him with antibiotics to try to fight off any infection he may have. Yeah, like, he really gives a fuck. Yeah, he cares. He's a very caring guy. Whatever, dude. On June 30th, Bradella moved Todd up to a room on the third floor because he was deteriorating fast. On the morning of July 1st, Bradella gave Todd a bath. He then tied him to a chair so he was sitting upright. At 11.30 a.m., when Bradella returned to check on him, he was dead. Todd Stoops had died from blood loss and septic shock. That's just terrible, man. Couldn't even imagine. Uh. Bradella then did his thing. But trash pickup wasn't for a few days, so he took Todd's dismembered body down to the basement. He hoped that the cooler temperatures on the lower floor would slow down decomp. Todd has survived Bradella for two weeks, but it would be his next victim who would endure the longest span of torture, Larry Pearson. Larry Wayne Pearson was from Wichita, Kansas. He became a ward of the court when he was a child, along with his six other siblings, due to his mother being a sex worker. After he graduated from high school, he got into some trouble with the law and was sentenced to jail for aggravated robbery, but he ended up getting out on a five-year probation term. He was part of this program with the Salvation Army. It was, like, part of the terms of his release, but after acting out a lot, they told him, hey, you're not taking it seriously, you're done, you're going back to jail, and so he took off to Kansas City and began working as a sex worker. In May 1987, when he was 20, he met Bordella by visiting the bazaar because he was interested in stuff like witchcraft and wizardry. Which, same. Yeah, right? (laughs) Harry Potter. Pearson asked Bordella if he could crash with him to get off the streets, to which he said, yeah, okay. 
on June 5th, Pearson was arrested for indecent exposure, and he didn't have the bail money, so he spent a few nights in jail until Berdella bailed him out on the condition, get this, on the condition that he would travel with him to Ohio to visit his family. That's, it's fucking weird, I know. This man's was like, come with me to visit my family. And I'll bail you out of jail. And I barely even know you. Yeah. That is so strange. Okay. Well, when they got back, he stayed on the couch downstairs, and they ended up going to the movies, which, after the movie, Pearson made a joke to Berdella about how he would rob gay men when he lived in Wichita, and it was with this joke that Berdella was like, this guy is next. Of course. So, on June 23rd, 1987, he drugged Pearson and tortured him for six weeks. Are you Six weeks? Six weeks. That's the longest of any of his victims. So for six weeks, he endured Berdella's wrath. So we're going to already go ahead and give you another trigger warning because this gets rough. Mm. He, He was originally kept in the basement, but because he was so submissive, he was able to convince Berdella to let him stay upstairs. And this was probably around day five. Berdella considered him to be his most cooperative victim, which if that's what you have to do to survive, you know, that's what you're going to do. Yep. So Pearson was told if he stayed cooperative, he would torture him less, but the rape was non-negotiable. Like, what the fuck? That's just ridiculous. Uh, yeah, well, he, he even trained himself to sleep without moving so he wouldn't disturb Berdella. After, again, six weeks of this monster on August 5th, while Master Bob, as Berdella made him call him, was raping him orally, Pearson bit his penis. Fuck yes. He bit it. Should have bit it off. But um, Berdella did beat him unconscious with a stick, and then he left for the hospital. That's how hard That's how hard he bit him. Good. Put that bitch in the hospital. Um, when he got to the hospital, the staff told him he was going to have to stay for a few days, but knowing Pearson was still at the house, he said that he had to go home to his dogs first. So he quickly went back to the house, and Pearson was still alive but unconscious, so he placed a plastic bag over his head and waited till he suffocated. And then he got a cab and just went back to the hospital like like nothing happened. Wow. And then after he came back from the hospital stay, he disposed of his body the way he did with every victim, but... Like his second victim, Sheldon, the sicko went to the backyard. He dug up Sheldon's skull, which has been there for two years, and then buried Pearson's head and brought Sheldon's skull back inside and placed it into his gallery closet. What the fuck? It, it's so unfortunate. Like six weeks and he almost probably maybe could have, I don't know if he could have made it, but just to survive that long and... To survive the, that, it's... Yeah, it's horrible. But um, around six to seven months later, Berdella kidnapped yet another young man, but this one has a much different outcome. Christopher Bryson would be the last man Berdella victimized. Christopher Bryson had spent some time living out on the streets after dropping out of high school, committing a string of B&Es along with sex work to feed his cocaine habit. He was now settled down and married with a child of his own. However, that old addiction demon reared its ugly head again. To Bryson, hustling on the streets was what he had to do to feed that demon. On Tuesday, March 29th at 1 a.m., Bryson was walking down 9th Street when a Toyota pulled up next to him, and the man inside asked if he wanted to party. Bryson accepted, unknowingly leaving with Satan himself. Literally Satan. Horrible. 
Bradella offered Chris a beer once he was in the car, and then he offered to give him some Valiums back at his place. Yeah, let's just go hang out with someone who's giving out free drugs. Free drugs? I, I've never heard of that. What's that? Apparently they give it to kids on Halloween when they go trick-or-treating. Interesting. I guess I have to try this trick-or-treating <laughs> I guess thing. so. Oh, my God. <laughs> at the house, Bradella asked Chris if he wanted to come upstairs to see the puppies that one of his dogs had just had. Bryson agreed, and once he reached the top of the stairs, Bob had struck him in the back of the head with a lead pipe and then injected drugs into his neck. He fell unconscious. Throughout the night, Bradella drugged and assaulted him, and around 8 a.m. on Tuesday, Bradella came into the room and noticed that Chris was awake and struggling. At this point, Bob rubbed bleach into Chris's eyes, climbed on top of him, pulled out a lead pipe, and began to beat Chris's hands to try to make him more reliant on him. This continued for days. When Bob would leave the house, he would turn on the TV and turn up the volume so Chris could not be heard if he screamed. On Friday, Bryson asked Bob if he could tie his hands to his feet versus being tied to the bedpost because it was uncomfortable. Bob agreed, tying his hands in front of him. He realized he could wiggle his hands in order to get free, but he was still scared to try to attempt it. On Saturday, when Bob left the house, Bryson began to try to free his hands. 20 minutes later, he had succeeded. He knew that untying his feet could take a while. Not knowing how much time he had left, he noticed a box of matches on the table that Bob had left within reach. He grabbed them and burned the ropes to set himself free. Bryson then opened the window and jumped from the second story, breaking his foot in the process. Across the street, there was a meter maid. Bryson, wearing only a dog collar, ran to him screaming to call the police. They then went to a neighbor's home nearby, and the man inside called 911 for them. Bryson had escaped after being held captive for four days. Freedom! We love a survivor. Thank God, yes. dude. I'm so glad he escaped. Thank God. Hell yeah, dude. When the police arrived a few minutes later, Bryson was curled up under a blanket. He told them that he was picked up while hitchhiking by a chubby white male named Bob. He also filled them in on the degrading events that took place while he was in his control. Two of the officers set up surveillance outside of Bob's home, and one returned to the office to get the paperwork in order to obtain a search warrant. When Robert returned home, the officers asked who he was, and he told them he was Robert Verdella. They asked for permission to search his home, to which, of course, he said no. Of course. They put him in the back of the car and took him in for questioning. Then the search warrant came through. So now I'm going to list off what they found inside the house, which is fucking crazy, and they were shocked. A transformer plugged into the wall with wires leading to the bed, a metal tray containing syringes, small bottles of prescription drugs, eye drops, and swabs, a human skull in the second floor closet, a human head in the backyard, a human vertebrae, two envelopes with human teeth, a hacksaw, a miter saw, a chainsaw with bloodstains, flesh, and pubic hair. Luminol tests showed massive bloodstains, numerous restraints and sexual devices, books on narcotics, hypodermic needles, newspaper clippings of the missing Jerry Howe, a wallet and a driver's license belonging to James Ferris, and 334 polaroid pictures of various individuals tortured and deceased <laughs> what the fuck dude, dude he's a horrible person I like don't even jeffrey understand. dahmer 2.0 or would he be would jeffrey dahmer be Birdella 2.0 at that point you know what? i don't know who came first yeah that's fucking that's weird. what i'm saying i don't understand how this guy isn't among them yeah how we've never heard know, of dude. him get this they also found a stenographer's pad of his torture log. Yeah, he would literally write down every single thing that he did to these men. But he was arrested, finally. finally! A team that consisted of one sergeant, Troy Cole, 
and 11 detectives were solely assigned to this case. While they were investigating, they learned about his reputation and why most gay men in their community tried to avoid him. They all knew that he had something to do with these missing men, starting with Jerry Howell. But back then, when police tried to question Berdella on the disappearance, he would have had his lawyer threaten them with harassment. You know, if these police would have probably done their job in the first place when Jerry went missing, it could have possibly saved all these other men's lives. But, you know, back then, oh, they're gay, like, they don't matter, yep. was, was pretty much what they all thought. Yep, most uh, people in sex work are considered less than dead to the cops. They, they don't care. Mm-mm. That's why a lot of these assholes pick women or men in the line of sex mm-hmm. work, so... All right, now back to the arrest. The police found the name of Freddie Kellogg. He was he was Robert Sheldon's friend, the the second victim. That's right. And uh, in one of Verdella's notepads, they tracked him down and told him that they had a few questions for him about Verdella. They showed him some of the Polaroids and asked if he could help them identify any of the men in the photos. He was able to identify not only himself, but also Jerry Howe and Robert Sheldon. And Paul Howe also identified his son Jerry and James Ferris's wife identified her husband. All right, so now it's time for the trial. So on July 22nd, 1988, Bradella was indicted by a grand jury for Larry Pearson's murder on one count of first-degree murder. So because they had his skull and dental records, they had concrete evidence, so they went after him on this charge first. When he was arraigned a month later, he actually shocked the judge and the prosecutors, who were Albert Ryderer and Pat Hall, by pleading guilty. He did this so he could avoid the death penalty, which the prosecutors were really adamant about going for, but he pled to life without parole on the condition he confessed under oath required by the judge, Alvin C. Randall. On August 24, 1988, Berdella submitted a guilty plea for one count of sodomy and one count of felonious restraint. This was from his assault of Chris Bryson, the one who got away. His only request for the plea, which is really weird, was for Bryson to sign a waiver saying he wouldn't sue him for damages. Now, Bryson didn't want to go to trial anyway. Um, He wanted it to be done with, so he accepted the terms. He didn't really want to relive the trauma, but he ultimately did end up suing him later, though. (laughs) So, you know. Wow. So he said he wouldn't. I don't know why he's so worried about money. Like, you're going to jail for the rest of your life, so why does it matter? Yeah, like, you ain't going to have shit, bitch. You don't have kids. Like, nobody loves you, so. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. But at this point, Verdella's defenders, Pat Bergen and Barbara Schenkenberg, knew that the prosecutors were going to be coming for the death penalty on the remaining murders. Like, there was absolutely no doubt about it. Just a quick side note, though, a lot of a lot of folks really, like, shat on these attorneys for defending him. Like, how could you do that? He's a monster. So the court had appointed these public defenders to him, and it's required as part of their job to obviously represent their client to the best of their ability. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to go defend the Kansas City Butcher. So just wanted to kind of put that out there, you know. I'm sure they probably didn't really want to, but they have to. But they, they have to, right. So his attorney set up a meeting. Their client, Burdella, was willing to plead guilty to all of the remaining murders if they won't seek the death penalty. This was rejected. They weren't able to come to terms, so on September 13th, 1988, he pleaded not guilty. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Berrigan, Berdella's attorney, and Pat Hall, the assistant prosecutor, began to negotiate a deal again in December of that year. So the biggest issue to bring all these murder charges was that there was no bodies, with the exception of the two skulls. So, And really, the only way they were even going to learn what happened to all of the victims, or even how many there actually were and where their bodies were, 
was with a confession. So Ryderer contacted some of the family members, like Paul Howell and Bonnie Ferris, and told them they were working on a plea deal in order to get a confession. While both initially accepted the deal, Paul Howell would later go on to say, fuck that, I want him to get the death penalty. But Same. Ultimately, the prosecutors accepted the plea, so Verdella had to confess to all of the murders in excruciating detail. From December 13th to 15th, Verdella told all of the explicit details about every single thing he did to Jerry Howell, Robert Sheldon, Mark Wallace, James Ferris, Todd Stoops, and Larry Pearson. What's really heartbreaking is that the families really wanted to bury the bodies of their relatives, but the prosecutors had to explain to them after hearing his confession they weren't going to find them. Like, there, there wasn't going to be any way to trace where the bags went nor locate them in any of the landfills. So, um, like I said earlier, the only way they were even going to be able to convict him or find out what's happened was by making this deal. On December 19th, 1988, Verdella pleaded guilty to one count of first-degree murder and four counts of second-degree murder in front of Judge Robert Myers. Myers sentenced him to five conditional life sentences, and on top of the two previous life sentences, to be served concurrently at the Missouri State Penitentiary. Unfortunately, he only served about four years in prison. He had complained previously to a local minister that the guards at the prison were refusing to give him his heart medication. Oh, fuck off, bitch boy. (laughs) I can't. Oh, my God. A few months later, Robert Perdella Jr., a.k.a. the Kansas City Butcher, died of a heart attack on October 8th, 1992. He was 43 years old. He went out just like his dad. Mm, so his heart attacked him too. That's so weird wow. that all these evil fuckers' Their heart, heart was just like, like nah. <laughs> <laughs> like, am I supposed to be sad about that? Because I'm not. I wish they would have withheld everything from him. Food, water, any basic needs he would have had. I mean, it's at least good that like the, the families were able to at least find out what happened to these men, but it still sucks at the same time like that they're never going to find them. I know. I know the family wants justice and to bring them home and, and have them with them, but... There was just no way, dude. No way. But yeah, that's pretty much the story. Of this piece of actual human garbage shit. Hope he's burning in hell. Rest in fucking distress. Oh my god, dude. Yeah, that was a rough one. It was really hard to get through that. (laughs) Do you want to know why it was so hard to get through that, Lisa? (laughs) I wonder why. Okay, first off, I can't read. (laughs) Lisa can't read. We had to stop like 500 times. I went to the school of kids who can't read good, okay? Oh, my God. Jesus. Listen, I thought I was that was struggling. a school for ants. It is. It needs to be leased three <laughs> times. Jesus. Oh, my God. I don't know what was wrong with me. You know, I will say that I think this was a pretty good first podcast. Listen, we came out with the hell of a case. <laughs> yeah, I know. There's just so much there's just so much facts and you don't want to get anything wrong. And no, and you like, don't want to disrespect any of the victims mm-hmm. or their family. Disrespect the murderer all you fucking yeah, want. Yeah, fuck that but, piece of shit. But I yeah, it's it was hard to figure that out and balance that correctly. Yeah. Um I also just want to give a quick shout out to a book. This book was our main source. It was called Rights of Burial. It was by Tom Jackman and Troy Cole who Troy Cole was a sergeant who supervised the investigation. So this was published in 1992. Um, I would say it was the most accurate resource we found, obviously due to the fact it was written 
you know, by the head detectives. So um, just quick shout out for them. I should definitely check it out. It's really good. It deep dives way more than we wanted to. Yeah. And but it's so good. And we'll list all of our other sources in the description. We hope that you guys enjoyed listening. And we hope you're here to join us next Wednesday. Bye.